Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. <clears throat> we are very pleased that you could join us this afternoon. And as has been the case for the past few weeks, this afternoon's topic spontaneously emerged as the self-evident next step in the series of topics which we have been exploring for the past few weeks now. And uh, we tried to make that abundantly clear in the description for today's live stream. Because at the end of the day, we can theorize and discuss in an abstract intellectual way concepts like emptiness and fullness and oneness. And we can even believe ourselves to be capable of mentally grasping what these abstract states are. But the reality is that most of the time, the, the vast majority of individuals on this planet experience none of those states. They might think they know, but they don't know. They only think they know. They only believe they know. What's more is a significant subset of the population actually believe that they have attained or that they possess one or more of these states, specifically oneness. Oneness is that phenomenon which we described last week, which is so easily feigned by mechanical nature. Because oneness exists on the level of mechanical nature. A school of fish, a flock of starlings, or what, what do they call them? Uh, do they call them a flock of bats? Well, anyway, I don't know if it's a flock or a murder or what, what of bats, but like starlings, they, 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 fly, they can fly in formation like one giant entity. And they're experiencing a kind of oneness through what is sometimes referred to as the morphogenetic field. But we discussed it last week, specifically in relation to human beings, as mob mentality or uh, the, the crowd effect. So individuals at a rock concert all jumping up and down in unison and singing and chanting and or everyone at a uh, televangelist's presentation, congregation, the congregation of a televangelist's uh, sermon. We have these collective experiences, and they can be powerful emotional experiences. And so many people believe that they have experienced oneness because they've had these types of experiences. But of course, that's not the oneness that we're referring to. 
And we explained that last week in great detail. There is no oneness to be had out there. Everything out there that we perceive is an illusion. To be one with an illusion is precisely to be in a place of separation. Separation from that which is real. If we are identified and if we are attached to that which is illusion, then by definition we cannot be in a state of oneness with that which is real. Expressed another way, if we are subjected to mechanicity, then we cannot be in a state of objectivity. Because we cannot be objective and subjective simultaneously. It is that dividing line which creates the separation where we are awake or we are asleep, where we see reality as it is, or we are subjected to a falsified, illusory reality that we believe is real, that we are identified with, and that we are attached to. And across this dividing line, this border which determines whether we have oneness or we are in a state of separation. And that is the vast majority of individuals on this planet. Now, we can split hairs on this topic, and many people do, and many people will. And they will say, well, that's impossible. If you have a soul, your soul is always connected to the, to the divine, and that God will never sever his connection to you. There are no lost sheep and all that business from the Bible, that Jesus will go out, the good shepherd goes out, and leaves the flock in order to find the lost sheep and all that, all that good stuff. But we approach the path from a place of infinite practicality, from the only place that we can, which is where we are, our present level of being. And in that level, that amount of consciousness, which would be free and would see to it that we know ourselves as divine beings, divine souls, as the player playing this MMORPG called life, this virtual reality simulation, this game, this matrix. 
but we don't know that player. We don't know ourselves to be that player. We are identified with this character that our consciousness is bottled up in. We are identified with this personality. We are identified with this physical body. And we might tell ourselves that we are not, but we are. We have to be honest with ourselves. When we give in to our defects and vices, our desire for pleasure and our uh, desire to avoid pain, cravings and aversions, and when our mind is, is uh, wanders off on its own and we are taken on a, a journey of fantasy, of wandering thoughts, meandering thoughts, and then we snap out of it and we realize we don't know where the last 10 minutes or 15 minutes just went. That is precisely being in a state of separation, of falling asleep regularly throughout the day. It is very, very rare to find an, an individual who is truly awake. That individual is a Buddha. That individual does not fall asleep, even when they go to sleep. They don't fall asleep. They don't dream. They can travel in the astral plane because their consciousness is fully awake. That's a rarity in this humanity. It's very rare. And just because people can have lucid dreams, it doesn't mean that they're awake. Because the same people that can have lucid dreams, it just means that they, they created their solar astral body in a previous lifetime. But throughout the day, they fall asleep. They get caught up in anger, they get caught up in lust, they get, ca get caught up in pride. And a lot of them get caught up in their own mystic pride. And they believe, because they can travel in the astral plane, that they're awakened, that they're enlightened, that their journey is done. Why? Because they can travel the heavens. Not realizing, of course, that the astral plane, the fifth dimension, that's the astral body and mental body, they are together two of the four bodies of sin which means that at any moment, that individual can fall from the solar astral plane to the lunar astral plane. And if throughout the day, in their waking hours, they are indulging pride and lust and laziness and gluttony, then there's a very good chance that when they're so-called traveling the astral plane, that they're traveling the lunar astral plane. Sure, they might be lucid dreaming, but what they're experiencing is still a product of their subjective mind. It is a projection of their subject of their subconscious mind. And they have no way to discern the difference because they're actually asleep. So the question we pose is why. Stuart Wilson joins us and uh, he kicks off our discussion this afternoon by saying the monad 
in the presence of totality of senses, shatters the illusion and delusions of mob mentality. Uh, sorry, the monad in the presence of totality of senses shatters the illusion and delusions of mob mentality isn't it. It's a very powerful monad, one that is awake or very close to being fully awake that can shatter all illusions. However, the second part of your statement is, is correct. The delusions of mob mentality obviously is not that. It is the opposite of that. As we point out, the more we get caught up in the collective exuberance of that many, many, many individuals expressing and in many ways having their emotions siphoned, they are leaking energy and that energy is flowing down and out of them through an egoic center, through their mental body, their astral body, their vital body, and their physical body. They're expending energy, and that energy is vibrating at a certain frequency. And the frequency that it's vibrating at is attenuated or tuned to the frequency that others around them are vibrating at. So, uh, what's the uh, terminology for that? There's an, uh, there's an official word that describes that process. And uh, uh, it'll come to us if we don't remember it. But it's the process by which, like, for example, a tuning fork will vibrate at the same frequency that a note on the piano is being played, for instance. And an individual who's surrounded by not just a dozen or a hundred, but a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand individuals who are all vibrating at a certain frequency, if that individual is, is asleep, then mechanically, under the laws of mechanical nature, they will begin their mechanical bodies and the entities inside of them will become active that are vibrating at that same frequency. And if they do not awaken and consciously resist is not the word, observe and transform those vibrations, then they will get caught up in it. And they'll just be another individual who just gets caught up in um, that mechanical process. Because again, that's a process of mechanical nature. And mechanicity is separation. 
We are in this world, but not of this world. It's this physical body, this personality, this mind, uh, and these, and this even this emotional center, and our vital body. That's all related to this character that we are playing, this role that we are playing. This is th these are all aspects of our human machine. They're all aspects of mechanical nature. That's why they're called the four bodies of sin. Why? Because sin is synonymous with ego. And these are the four bodies, the three brains and the five centers. So emotional center, mental center, vital center, and motor instinctive sexual center. The motor instinctive sexual center refers to our physical body. Those three brains and five centers, which are arranged in these four bodies, these are the domain where egos play. And egos play us. And whereas our innermost being, the player of this game, is supposed to be in control of this avatar, of this character, that we identify as. Instead, these egos infect us. And they always appear to us as I. I want this. I don't want that. I am hungry. I am, I am lazy. I am afraid. I want to be in control. I, 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 I. Me, 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 me. I want, I don't want. And these egos are playing their game of king, in the, of king of the Hill, or like we like to say, they're playing their game of thrones, like Daenerys Stormborn says. And around and around and around they go. The, the wheel goes. This one's on top and that one's on top. And around and around the wheel goes, crushing everything un underneath. That's the game of thrones that our egos are playing inside of us. And every time an ego sits upon the iron throne in our psyche, it presents itself as I. It announces itself. It coronates itself. And that coronation ceremony is very beguiling. It's very convincing. Because when an ego takes the throne, the iron throne of our psychology, it rules with an iron fist. All egos are malevolent. All egos are parasites. But we know from our rich, literary, mythological, narrative history, narrative traditions, that the more sinister and insidious the villain, the more charming and beguiling and sophisticated and subtle and tempting they can be. This is the archetype of the Bond villain. 
This is Darth Sidious in the Star Wars prequel trilogy, right? The Phantom Menace. He's in the background. He's unknown. The Sith Lord is unknown. Meanwhile, he's right out in the open, calling himself Senator Palpatine. And acting or appearing to act in the best interests of the Republic. And if you watched Game of Thrones, you know that each house who has claim to the Iron Throne, each house has its reasons, its rationale, why it belongs on the throne. And why this house or that house should rule Westeros for this reason and that reason and the other reason. And it's always within our own psychology presented as me, I, except in those instances where individuals suffer from uh, let's call it what it is, they suffer from possession in which case there are other entities at play. And then that individual can suffer multiple personalities, schizophrenia, and any number of conditions. But even then, it's sometimes they experience that possession as another entity, an it or an other. Other times they experience like multiple personalities, each personality that prevents itself, presents itself, they, they, they assume it, they take it on, and they say, I, 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 I. Or schizophrenics, for example, or bipolar. And they cannot disassociate, and they cannot uh, discern which is their actual personality and which is one of these entities that are occupying the same psychological space inside of them. All of this, all of this is mechanical. And it's the best way to appreciate or to understand the mechanicity of it all is to think about a computer, which is a machine. And think about a computer that's infested with malware. And all these little programs that are all seeking to take control of that machine's system resources. And how they do so is by infecting executable files or graphics files or other files that when accessed, when run, actually activate the malware and allows the malware to use system resources to replicate itself, to, pro to proliferate. Just like any 
parasite, really. So that, like the tapeworm that enters the body, a tiny microscopic little thing. But over time, that parasite can grow, that tapeworm can grow and grow and grow and grow and grow until the individual starves to death. And the individual starves to death because the tapeworm can grow as large as the intestines themselves. And everything that the individual is eating goes right into the tapeworm. And no, nothing ever gets absorbed by the body. So it doesn't, so they can eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, and they'll starve to death. And if you've ever seen uh, you know, some horrific tapeworm extractions, there have been tapeworms that are many meters long, because that's how long our small intestine is when it's all, you know, wrapped up. And a tapeworm can can grow and fill fill that entire space. But it's through that integration with the system, whether it's a biological system, a parasite integrates. Or a malware infects and integrates with the existing system, the existing operations of that system. Just like most people have no idea that their home computer or their smartphone is riddled with spyware and adware and malware of all kinds. And they're unbeknownst to them, they're spreading it throughout the internet are spreading it to other devices, and they have no idea. So now, well, let's pause. We have some, we have some comments. Stuart said that uh, he loved our response to his comment. Azazel, hello Azazel, nice to uh, have you here. He says, it takes over the conscious mind at that point when the program runs its course. And once you know the code, you kind of get a code which you can't, which you can enter to run the program again. And he uh, continues here. In other words, when you become conscious of it, you're left with a choice. Now, Let's uh, back up for a second. It takes over the conscious mind at that point when the program runs its course. And uh, once you know the code, you kind of get a code which you can enter to run the program again. Most egos, well, where egos exist are in the subconscious mind and how they get us to indulge them is by presenting in our conscious awareness uh, cravings and aversions that as we just described a moment ago present themselves as i i want this i don't want that And so, just like a malware 
which embeds itself into another executable or embeds itself into an image. You open that image and the malware is now running in the background. But the image that it's showing you is just the image. Or you run the executable file. Let's say you download some kind of uh, whatever it may be, some little app you download and there's malware embedded in that app. Let's call it, say, let's say it's spyware. You run the app, the app presents itself to you as a legitimate app. And the, 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 the malware, the spyware might be working in the background, uh, skimming passwords off your system or yeah, searching for your banking information or searching for your personal information and scraping that off, off your system. You, you allowed it, you gave it permission to run when you ran the software that it presented to you. So let's work, let's, so let's work with a practical example of if you're, you, you want a particular outcome. We're going to try to keep it very vague so that as many can identify and recognize uh, the situation as possible. And let's call it, you want to arrive somewhere on time. That's the outcome that you want. You want to arrive on time. Now, no matter how you're traveling, whether you're bicycling, you're in a car, you're relying on public transit, you're relying on someone to give you a ride, you're relying on a flight schedule, doesn't matter. You want to arrive on time for whatever reason. Maybe you have an exam, maybe it's an important meeting, it doesn't matter. But you want to get there on time, you do not want to be late. We have all been in that situation at some point in our life. And we've all been in a situation where circumstances that were completely beyond our control kept coming up and serving as obstacles to that goal of wanting to arrive on time. So we're, in a, we're on our bicycle or we're in our car and it's red light, red light red light, red light, <laughs> or if there's a traffic jam, or there's a railroad crossing and, and a, uh, a train that's three miles long, and it literally takes 15 minutes to, uh, to pass, and we're stuck 15 minutes because of the, tr because of the, uh, the train. Or maybe we were relying on public transit, and the train was late. There was an accident. There was a derailment. There was something on the tracks. There was, you know, some delay or, you know, our flight got canceled or our flight was delayed or our flight was late arriving or there was a problem with a passenger or any number of a million different circumstances have happened to us. And our reaction was one of anger, was one of frustration, was one that, but I really need to arrive on time. It was our attachment 
to that outcome. <laughs> Azazel says, yeah, delays tend, tend to turn me into an asshole. <laughs> uh, road rage is a very real phenomenon. And uh, travelers rage as well. It doesn't that it's not only uh, unique to drivers, and it's certainly not unique to you, Azazil. All of us have been in a situation where, for whatever reason, we felt like our life depended upon arriving at our destination by a certain time, and when. All of those obstacles, all of those delays kept confronting us along the way. We got more agitated, more frustrated, more angry, more, you know, or dismayed or disillusioned or all of these different emotions pouring out of us. And maybe we're blaming others, maybe we got angry, lashing out at people. You know, because many people, when it comes to road rage or traveler's rage, they, they need to get their anger out, and so they take it out on others. Other drivers, for example. So what was really going on there? What was really going on there? The desire to control the outcome, the desire to be in control, to arrive on time, was being fueled by the malware fear. Yeah. Azazel says it right here. For me, it's usually fear. It's always fear. Because the desire to control is always fear. The, the, the attachment to outcomes and, and the desire to control people and circumstances so when the train isn't on time or the flight is delayed and or or uh, the the traffic is bad or the guy cut us off the guy in front of us cut us off on the highway that fear very quickly turns to anger and we are tempted to take out that anger on that individual yell at that individual yell at the uh, the individual working in the, at the, uh, the desk at the airport, the check-in desk, or what have you. So traveling and preparing and planning to arrive on time doesn't necessarily have to be done with any fear. It is what it is. We have to be practical. There are things we have to do, places we have to go, places we need to be, and out of courtesy and out of, uh, or practicality, we have to arrive on time. So for example, if we are taking a flight, we have to get there in time so that we don't miss our flight. We have to be able to be to get checked in, to go through security, to jump through all those hoops at the airport in order to make it onto the plane. So we there's there's a sense of urgency there. 
but the malware installs itself into the program called traveling. And that malware is fear. And our knowledge, our conscious awareness, what we know to be true, objectively true, is that I really do need to get to the airport on time so I don't miss my plane. Fear embeds itself into that objective truth and twists it and alters it ever so slightly into, oh my God, I have to be there on time. I have to get there. And why? Because if I don't, I'll miss my plane and I'll be out all this money and and all of these other this this whole cornucopia of fantasies start these worst case scenarios start playing themselves in our mind in our subconscious mind that are all being fueled by fear so what should be a very calm and straightforward procedure of traveling to the airport and catching a plane, catching a flight, becomes this harrowing race against the ticking time bomb clock, you know, like in a Mission Impossible movie. Because fear has now ratcheted up the stakes and created this whole uh, drama around a very straightforward, objective, it is what it is, we have to get to the airport on time, into this harrowing, uh, life-threatening race against the clock. That if you don't make it to the airport on time, the world's going to end. And we behave accordingly. And the whole time along the trip, we're agitated, we're sweating, we're checking our watch, we're snapping at people, we're rushing, we're pushing our way through crowds, we're racing up, uh, uh, up and down escalators, we're running like mad people to catch this taxi or catch that thing, or, or, we're, or we're swerving in and out through traffic, or we're going 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 kilometers over the speed limit. <laughs> It's just, you name it, you name it. And you've seen people, people do it all the time, all the time. And what you're witnessing is fear. As Azil says, I'll lose my job is a big one. <laughs> well, you know, um, Or what will they think of me? How's that? My reputation is on the line. What will they think of me if I'm late? Again. <laughs> nah, some people just, you know, they're not good at being on time. Some people are tardy. That's, you know, they're just, they're just that way. They're wired to be tardy. They're always late. And you can count on them always being late. In Japan... 
uh, everybody's 15 minutes early. They, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a culture where being on time is so important. It's been embedded in everybody's <laughs> psyche that to be on time means to be 15 minutes early. Uh, that's a that's a country where you can set your watch by the uh, uh, by the arrival of a train. Um, arrival times and departure times are are scheduled in seconds, and that the only the only time ever a train is late in Japan is if someone died. If uh, if if someone lost their life somewhere along, that's a suitable excuse for a train to be late. Anything short of that is not a suitable excuse. That's a different kind of cultural uh, cultural aspect. But it's you look at the Japanese people while they're traveling. And they might be agitated on the inside, but they, generally speaking, they don't show it. Uh, road rage is something I never saw in Japan. Traveler's rage is something I never saw in Japan. People are usually very calm and, and just they, they go about their way. I mean, it's 150 million people living in one-fifth the landmass of Texas. So people have to learn how to be chill. And people have to learn how to get around, you know, in packed train stations and buses and trains and everything else. It's just a fact of life there. No one can afford to lose their temper. No one can afford to believe that, that they arriving on time is more important than other people, other people's uh, plans. But we digress. Uh, Azazel says, yeah, damn, it's more pride. And uh, Azazel says, look at me. I'm always on time. Look at my performance. <laughs> That's an aspect of it, but there's, but you see this, right? This, 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 okay. So this, look at me always on time and look at my performance. Yeah. Okay. That can be pride or it appears, it sounds like, seems like that's pride, but we always point out that the father and mother of all, de of all egos are fear and lust. In this particular case, the desire to control what other people think of me. The desire to control our reputation. We call that pride. But when we look at it objectively, a desire to control what other people think, that's a desire to control others. That's an outcome, what other people think of me. The desire to control and influence that, that's fear. And it's a desire, which means it's lust. Pride is really too much self-love. So 
being on time, or this would be like um, this statement, if you were saying this statement internally to yourself, I'm so great. I'm always on time. I'm so reliable. I'm such a good employee or I'm so, I'm, I'm, I'm such a, um, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm a star employee or I'm so valuable to this firm. I'm so reliable. I, 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 and you have this running thing going on inside your own mind, building yourself up, blowing yourself up to be this, uh, you know, this Adonis of timekeeping and punctuality. <laughs> That's pride. That's the pride aspect of it. Vanity. Too much self-love. But the projection of that onto others and wanting that to be validated by others, yes, that's also pride, but really it's the projection of vanity through insecurity. This is why uh, actors and stand-up comedians you will find are among the most insecure people in the world. Most stand-up comedians will freely admit to this. They're very, very insecure. The whole reason why they got up in front of an audience to make an audience laugh way back in elementary school when they made their classroom laugh and they were the class clown or they made everybody laugh at the parties that they went to is to get that validation to get the to get everybody laughing and oh everybody likes me everybody likes me they must like me they're all smiling at me or they like to have me around because I can make them laugh I can entertain them I'm valuable I'm useful to the group I'm 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 not going to be ostracized and I'm not going to be excommunicated from the club and as long as I can keep people happy, as long as I can keep people laughing, then, then my position is safe and secure. That's fear. That's insecurity. Being the center of attention for that moment is, is it's far more related to insecurity and fear than it is to pride. It's only when somebody begins identifying and believing that the validation goes beyond simply a reciprocal act of I made them laugh and they laughed. They laughed at my jokes. It's when actors and performers, comedians and whatnot, when their head gets too big and they begin and they, they switch from, they, they're still very insecure, but they start layering layers of, of self-love on top of that. Or inversely, they layer layers of self-loathing. Well, that's pride. Self-loathing or too much self-love or too much self-loathing. That's uh, uh, pride and shame. Because the ego doesn't care. Pride doesn't care if we love ourselves too much or we hate ourselves. This is why so many comedians end up committing suicide. Because they see themselves as a failure. They see themselves as a horrible person or they're just the, the worst of the worst. And they get up on stage and they play the role of a comedian and they make people laugh and they get that validation 
that that sure that as a comedian but then the rest of the time in their life they've the, the if the pride in them goes inverted and feeds on on self-pity and self-shame then um then you have a recipe for disaster you have performers that it doesn't matter how much money they make doesn't matter how successful they are doesn't matter anything related to their career and how uh successful they become they just fall deeper and deeper and deeper into the downward spiral of self-loathing and self um self-sabotage because the ego of pride will keep telling them that you know oh that's that that movie that that you got an oscar for that performance you that was shit that was garbage that was the worst performance ever you don't deserve that oscar it was all political they only gave you that oscar because abc xyz you didn't actually deserve it and these voices in their head are very convincing and so they get and because of and self-loathing is one of the if not the most powerful impetuses for people to uh, uh, abuse substances or fall into any addiction really they become sex addicts or drug addicts alcoholics uh gambling addicts you name it the list the list goes on and on and on and um for many people in hollywood that addiction includes sexual depravity sexual degeneration until eventually they have to turn to the underaged which is why sound of freedom that movie is being completely attacked by the mainstream media and and uh and ignored by hollywood because it's, it's drawing attention to a subject that that uh they can't afford they they can't afford to lose their supply of innocent young children because that is the ultimate drug for the sexually addicted that is the ultimate prize is an underaged uh, individual and probably we didn't intend on getting on on um winding up here but outside of a few other examples uh the abuse of children the sexual abuse of children is one of the furthest one of the examples of the furthest away from being godlike that any soul can be and today's talk is about separation but what's more it's not just about separation separation is a loaded word there's much more to separation as we have been talking about for nearly an hour and although you can't see it in the graphic behind us because we're in the way there's a tiny figure lost in this isolated desolate desert landscape painting that's that's the, our backdrop today isolation desolation these go part and parcel with separation 
the further we are from ourself, the more alone we feel. And it's that isolation and that desolation that can cause us to turn to ever more insidious behaviors, beliefs, conditions, and acts. Someone who is addicted And let's not even go to the degree of sexual addiction. Let's talk about social addiction. Someone who can't be alone. They always have to be around others. They always have to be around people. They constantly need the company of others to socialize, to gossip, to, to, to these, are, these are busybodies. And they're always volunteering here, there, and everywhere. And they have multiple different groups of friends. And every night of the week, they're somewhere else with this group or that group or this girlfriend or that boyfriend or that friend or whatever. And they're just, they're, they're social butterflies is the polite way to describe these individuals, social butterflies, or again, busybodies, social busybodies. And they pack their schedule and they're always so busy, they always have another thing to go to. Because for them, they will do anything to avoid the realization that they are utterly alone, that they've totally isolated themselves from their being. And so when they are alone and they, they that loneliness, in that loneliness, they feel that self-loathing. And it comes to them like that, a feeling of desolation. That they're worthless and unlovable. That, that same feeling of self-loathing that causes so many others to do things like drink or do drugs or lose themselves in you know, gambling addictions or video games or any number of other addictions or even food addictions for that matter. They, they medicate that feeling of self-loathing with their drug of choice. Well, the social butterfly medicates that feeling of self-loathing with the, like the stand-up comedian, with the constant validation of being surrounded by groups of friends or acquaintances and, and uh, being important, keeping themselves relevant and important.
but like any addiction it's only a temporary fix it's only a temporary bomb it numbs them of that underlying feeling of desolation that self-loathing that feeling that not only are we not loved but we're unlovable nobody wants us nobody will have us we're so alone in this world that is born of separation the unawareness of our higher self the unawareness of our innermost divine mother It is we are too identified with this character and then pride comes along and starts judging and condemning and self-sabotaging us and we get wrapped up in that. And that is the cause. And, the, and any, any addict, it doesn't matter how many people they feel in their life, uh, how many people they have in their life, an addict will always feel alone. They can be surrounded by people and they feel alone. That's why uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, <clears throat> the first step is that group encounter where that addict can walk into that AA meeting and sit down. <clears throat> And whether they're the first person to speak or the last person to speak is irrelevant. Before that meeting is done, that individual will, will hear possibly 11 other individuals raising their hand and saying and admitting in public that they are an alcoholic or a drug addict or a gambling addict or what have you. And in that experience, each one of those addicts discovers for the first time, possibly in their entire life, that no, in fact, they are not alone. And the individual moderating that AA meeting also speaks. And also gets up and admits to everybody in that circle, I'm so-and-so, and I'm also an alcoholic. But I took my last drink so many years ago, or so many months ago. And I'm here now to show you that it's possible to overcome your addiction. And this is the first step to know that you're not alone. We are all in this together. And every successful AA program invokes the divine. If a uh, if there is no way, there is no way to successfully break an addiction without invoking the divine. 
the divine self, the divine spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, whatever. However, whatever narrative, however that's understood in the heart and the mind of the addict, the transcendental self, the higher self, must be invoked. They must come to embrace and realize in however way they can do so, that they are not alone. And that even when they're not in their AA meeting, that a spark, a seed of worthiness goes with them everywhere they go. And it's that little sliver, that little connection is what they hold on to. And it's just a thread. But that thread is enough. But if that thread is missing, that cessation program will fail. Anyone that tries to do AA or run an AA-like program and that does so in a purely secular way without any reference to the supernal, the higher self, the divine, and they try to run it, I don't know like how they would run it, like, like a pure atheist. Those programs fail. Because you cannot solve the problem of isolation and desolation without comprehending separation. And to an atheist, there is no separation. To an atheist, you, the addict, addict, are whole and complete as you are. Therefore, there's no way that they can heal. Without any understanding of the demon of addiction, the demon which exploits that separation, without any reference of being able to face that demon for what it is in our separation, in our isolation, in our desolation, we are what? An easy target. How many of you have ever been walking outside in a desert and in some desolate place and, and above you were circling the vultures? What are they waiting? They're just waiting for you to fall. They're waiting you to, to give up, to collapse from heat exha exhaustion or dehydration. And there they are, the vultures, lying in wait. Or you're out in the wilderness, lost in the wilderness, in the mountains, and the rest assured, there are coyotes or wolves who have already picked up your scent. And it's not by accident that you have prophets 
in the Bible who are always in the desert and they're always wandering in the desert. And we did a live stream, well, months and months and months ago about being lost in the, in the desert and the significance of that. And the Israelites who wandered the desert for 40 years and the significance of the, the symbology of that and Jesus being tempted in the desert. And we'll get into that, I guess, a little bit um, a little bit uh, in a minute. But we have a few comments here. Uh, Azazel says, it's, it's a crappy place to be. But then we remember that we cannot handle uh, the powerful being either. We're not meant to handle the powerful being. We're meant to be for the powerful being, its vessel and its servant. We don't handle the being. Our being handles us. That's the difference. But we know where you're coming from, but it's when we let go and realize that the reason why we can't handle the being is is because we're trying to. Whereas when you let go and surrender, and you're no longer trying to handle the being, you allow yourself to be handled by the being, then you are amazed at what you are capable of. Because now you're being handled instead of you trying to handle As Azel says, yeah, I know, but I guess uh, we supposed we meant uh, the power that runs through us as a vessel is overwhelming. It can be, sure. It can be at times. And we've experienced that, right? Um, we wrote about that in, in our uh, poem, uh, Touched by the Christ. But it wasn't our being that we couldn't handle at that moment. It was the being of beings. It was the Christ that was flowing through us in that moment uh and that was i mean well you can read about it on our poem online which we've we've shared many times the link um on atlas.info uh and then as azul also says uh it literally floors us and we don't want to be floored like that Every new experience is frightening at first, and it's uncomfortable at first. And it's precisely uncomfortable because there's a, an aspect of resistance to it. All of this is, to, all of what you're describing is the, the, the experience of being on one side of that dividing line of separation. And the, the orientation of the, of the self to the self. And as you said, it, it's overwhelming. It's, it's, but each experience brings us closer to being on the other side of the line. But the, 
re revelation, the revolution which must take place within us, is the surrender which kicks us over the line when we let go. And you've heard that expression before, let go and let God. As Azel also says, okay, we, we did quit alcohol fully and we are fully capable of, of avoiding many other things. But lust is the main adversary that prevents it in our case. And if lust doesn't do it, then fear takes over. Lust and fear are the two, are the two dominant and most difficult egos. They're the two egos most responsible for the separation of this humanity from itself, from God. Uh, so the whore of Babylon and her pimp. So, the only thing that we can do is to face our fear and to transform, transmute our sexual energy, to transform and transmute our lust into love. And the more we work intelligently with the sexual force, the more we practice transmutation, and we can practice transmutation as uh, singles, uh, we've shared this article before, but we'll share it again. Uh, where is it? There it is. Okay. There it is. In the sacred rites of rejuvenation, which are good to practice, you know, regardless, uh, it's always a good thing to to practice. Forgive us while we just to get our uh, keyboard here. Um, there's the link. And um, the sixth rite, we get down here, it's the Vairoli Mudra. Uh, yeah, okay. Transmutation for bachelors and bachelorettes. So we want to practice pranayama, which is also covered uh, briefly in the rites because pranayama is performed between each rite. But then finally we get to this sixth rite. And we can practice uh, this as as uh, bachelors and bachelorettes. Obviously, there's a different practice for men than there is for women. But then we also have to be conscious throughout our day when we are confronted by, by images or scenes of that are sexually arousing or or titillating in some way. Even if we're walking down the street and we see an attractive woman or attractive man. Master Samael um, encourages us to avert our eyes from their body and focus instead on their face. If it is an attractive woman that we are seeing, another way to 
transmute the lust that we might feel towards them or the lust that is being triggered or being aroused inside of us by imagining them as our divine mother or just think about your divine mother remember your divine mother remember the divine feminine contemplate that that woman either they are already or they may someday be somebody's mother see them transform in your conscious imagination make them into the mother mary the mother of jesus or mary magdalene can you still feel lust for them once you using your conscious imagination you see your focus instead on on their face instead of their body and they're now they're robed as the wife of jesus can you still feel lust at that moment try it we talk about the transformation of impressions lust is one of the hardest uh, impressions to transform lustful images so when we're watching a movie and then all of a sudden up comes a very graphic sex scene very difficult to transmute that to transform that impression pornography is all but impossible to transform so don't watch it anytime any scene like that comes up avert your eyes look down turn the volume down and just wait for the scene to pass and then you can continue watching the movie there's no particular reason why um you know you don't owe it to anybody to expose yourself to that which is going to keep stimulating lust inside of you and fear we have our 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 article on fear and well uh there's only one thing you can do with fear and that's to to face it and you have to face uh, the many faces of fear. And there's the link for that one. Oops. That's a very long article, but it's long because it's it's very personal. It's based on our direct experience as well. But have we gotten to the question of why we set out to answer that question why separation why isolation why desolation why if it's so terrible if it's so horrible if it makes us vulnerable to egos why go there why why are we put in these situations
Joseph Campbell, in his book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, introduced what he called the hero's journey. And he codified it and revealed it to the world. But what he was doing was bringing order and structure to the alm of life, to the spiral, progressive spiral journey of evolution, evolution of the soul. And we should all be familiar with the hero's journey and the various different stages of the hero's journey. Stages which uh, vary from version to version of, you know, it depends Uh, we're trying to find a, a, a better image. We're looking for a large image of it. There's a million of them, but we want a large one that we can put on the screen. Let's go size large. Okay, we like this one. All right, let's do this. Let's see if we can put this on the screen. Transparent graphic on the back. Okay. All right. Let us share this. How's that? That's that's nice and big. You guys should be able to read that. So, you know, we start here. And again, this is the... You can see the, the spiral nature of the hero's journey. This is how the hero's journey should be drawn. And there's this divide here. And Campbell calls everything above the line the ordinary world and then everything below the line the special world. But that's a interpretation or one interpretation of that line in those two places. Another way is the known and the unknown from a psychological perspective, it's our conscious mind and our subconscious mind. But in the context of what we're talking about today, that line is the dividing line between oneness and separation. Why separation? When you comprehend that these can be described as the known above the line and the unknown below the line. 
that's that's one clue why do you play a video game like a role-playing game why do people go and climb mountains by themselves why do people go on cross-country journeys by themselves why do people get into boats to cross the channel or the atlantic or the pacific why do people throw a backpack on and decide they're going to backpack by themselves through europe or through asia or through south america why we got on a plane and went to japan to be alone we weren't alone but separation or leaving home and going into the unknown world the special world the world of separation the world that is outside of our comfort zone of the, the the place that is beyond our space of familiarity our sense of self to go to to separate ourselves from all of that and throw ourselves into the unknown is a process of discovery it is precisely a process of exploration and for everyone who comprehends such journeys it is a process of liberation that is only possible through that journey the hero's journey is not possible without this key point right here. It's called crossing the threshold. When we cross from the known into the unknown. The undiscovered country, Hamlet calls it in his, favorite, in his famous speech, to be or not to be. the undiscovered country. And what happens to us immediately after we cross the threshold? Tests, trials, ordeals. We meet, we make new allies, but we also meet new enemies, adversaries along the way. And eventually, we will face what is sometimes referred to as the dark night of the soul. In Star Wars, an Empire Strikes Back, uh, Luke on Dagobah is shown the cave by Yoda. 
And in the cave, he has to face his shadow self. Oh, we can't uh, scroll this. Okay. So, oh, maybe we can. Yeah, here we can. So let's see if we can. So to approach the inmost cave, and then in that cave, the ordeal of the abyss to face the shadow self. And Luke faces Darth Vader in the cave. And when he defeats Darth Vader, he cuts off Darth Vader's head and Darth Vader's mask pops out and he's and he looks stunned and horrified because under the under the mask of Darth Vader was his own face. This is possible only because Luke is on Dagobah. Luke separated from Han, Luke, Leia, and Chewie. And so, so, it is that process of separation, isolation, and desolation that the hero faces his greatest tests. And they're tests that we have to face alone because there are tests that are for us. And they're tests that we cannot face in the comfort and security of what's familiar to us and the comfort and security of of who we already know ourselves to be. We must face the journey which challenges everything that we thought about ourselves, anything that everything that we believed ourselves to be gets tested in that separation, in that special world, in the unknown, in the subconscious mind. This is Dante's ladder and Jacob's ladder. Before you can ascend to the next level, to the next rung of the ladder, you must first descend Before you can ascend to the next level of heaven, you must first descend to the next lower level of hell. And this spiral process goes around and around and around. And every time we cross this line, we experience some form of separation. And we must face, first and foremost, our own separation anxiety. Because if we don't face and come to terms with our separation anxiety, we will either never embark on these journeys or We will be so afraid and so uncomfortable and so insecure in that separation, in that isolation, in that desolation, 
that we will easily be taken advantage of. We will be easily be exploited. We will easily fall victim to our shadow. Instead of conquering it. The shadow self will overwhelm us. Because we cannot conquer our demons if we're coming at them from a place of fear. From a place of discomfort, from a place of insecurity. We have to be able to be comfortable in the special world. Not, not comfortable in the sense of the comfort and security that our ego desires, but comfortable with the discomfort, comfortable with the insecurity, if that makes any sense. Comfortable in our isolation, comfortable in our desolation. Fearless in that sense. But even if we do feel fear, if that's part of our separation, then we embrace, we allow that fear, we embrace that fear and say, if that's what we need to face, then we need to experience it. We need to feel it. We can't avoid it. We can't run away from it. You can't be in the desert and not be in the desert. You have to be in the desert. You just don't have to suffer the desert. It is what it is. You can transform the experience of the desert. And of course, all of this is predicated on the same wisdom that we describe in the AA process. That the isolation and desolation that the addict needs to overcome, the, the addiction that they need to overcome, which is feeding on their self-loathing and suffering, it requires a thread. It requires a breadcrumb trail. Or it requires a weapon that was given to us by our Divine Mother. The tools, the weapons that we need in order to conquer the shadow self, which we will encounter in the depths, in the bowels of the abyss. So this is Athena who gives the shield and the spear to Perseus. Was it a shield and a sword? He uh, she gives to uh, Perseus. Like I think she gives a uh, a spear to Theseus. Perseus faces Medusa, and Theseus faces the Minotaur. Both Medusa and the Minotaur live in the underworld in the labyrinth. And I think Theseus is also given a uh, spool of uh, string of thread. To, so that he can find his way, he can make his way back out of the uh, labyrinth after he kills the Minotaur. So in other words, we cross into the unknown 
and we experience that separation, but there's always a spark. There's always a thread. There's always something with us which reminds us, which connects us to, to whence we came. In other words, we go into the unknown with something that we know, a token, a talisman that represents our continuous connection even in our separateness. All of us, here and now, no matter what level of being we are at, we are here and now in this world, and all of us have within us, in the left ventricle of our heart, the atom noose, the spark, the seed, of our divinity. And no matter how much ego we have, no matter how uh, much suffering we have, no matter how asleep we may be, we have that spark within us. That spark, that seed is, is our connection, our thread back to where we came from. And in this separateness that we experience day to day, our journey, our quest is to face that which haunts the kingdom, that which is responsible for our ignorance and our hypnosis, that which is Lord over this unknown that we are now exploring. Like Frodo and Sam who cross who, got, who must bypass the Black Gate but who cross over into Mordor to complete their quest to destroy the ring. And Frodo, the innermost being, and Sam, his physical body, his servant. And there's that beautiful moment when Frodo collapses and Sam says, come on, Mr. Frodo, I might not be able to carry it for you, but I can carry you. And Sam picks Frodo up and he climbs up the side of Mount Doom with, Sam on his, with Frodo on his back. So, in that sense, in that moment, they are one, Sam and Frodo. Even as they are completely isolated and desolated. They are totally alone in Mordor to do their great quest, to eliminate the ring, the ring of power. And it's true for all heroes and all time, 
in all stories. 6,500 stories and legends and scriptures and, and narratives of every ilk Joseph Campbell explored. And he always, he always found the same archetypes, the same pattern, the same story, the same heroic journey. And it is this dividing line between the known and the unknown, between oneness and separation. But Frodo and Sam don't go into Mordor empty-handed, do they? They go with Latmus bread. They go with the evening star, the, uh, the, the, the glowing vial of light. And they go with elvish rope. They are given these gifts by the Lady Galadriel, who is, of course, a symbol of the Divine Mother. Like all such stories, a divine feminine figure will often arm the hero with some tool or some weapon or some uh, item of utility. And again, that, that is a connection back to the known. And King Arthur, the Lady of the Lake, extends Excalibur from the waters. Because the other thing that we have with us at all times is, a, is our spinal column. And at the base of our spinal column, uh, we have our Divine Mother, Devi Kundalini Shakti. We have our sexual force, our creative force. And that is the force that we take with us on our journey. That is what is going to help us overcome what we face because we need energy to face the challenges, the tests and the ordeals that we face. As Azil says, so the special world is the separation. Yes. What we're calling the special world, what's they're calling the special world in this graphic but in other graphics, it is known as here. In other gra well, we can't can't blow this one up, can we? So you see here it says known and unknown. So the special world is special because it's the undiscovered country. What is special about it is because it's unknown. It's not yet discovered. Like what's special about your life? What's special about who you are, who you know yourself to be? It's mundane, right? It's boring. <laughs> it's, 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 it's right. It's not special. It's every day. It's, it's, we take for granted. And most of us, when we're in our place of comfort and security, how many of us remember to observe ourselves and remember our Divine Mother and remember our innermost being? When you're home and relaxed and in your comfort zone and you're not being tested and you're not being challenged, 
we let our guard down. We're we're at peace. We're relaxed. That's because we're in a familiar place. We're in a we're in our safe space. And in many ways, we feel we can feel oneness at that uh, in that space. We're not being tested, right? We're not, and so in that sense, everything is. We have that balance. We have that equilibrium. But then we go out into into the world. And this is what uh, Master Samael referred to when he talked about the and as Azazel says, nah, it's horribly uncomfortable. So I guess it's special in that way. If you are wherever you are right now, if it's uncomfortable, then you're being tested. And remember, the whole point of the hero's journey is to find comfort in the discomfort. To allow to be in the discomfort and say, it is what it is. That's the transformation of impressions. That's like the transformation of pain. Because pain is a concept in the mind. You can experience pain without pain, believe it or not. You can experience pain for what it is, which isn't pain. Pain is a concept in the mind. It's, a, it's something to be avoided at all costs according to the ego. We have a tremendous aversion to pain. But it's possible to experience pain and not feel pain. It's it's, It's possible to pass through the desert without suffering as though you were in the desert. (laughs) To know suffering and liberate yourself from suffering through the experience of suffering. To know suffering means to know the causes of suffering. And to know those causes is the first step to liberation from those causes. And as Azza says, now nah, we see it all, we see it as a wall of flame with the mindset that we don't know what may be behind that wall. So, now you have to be specific. You see what as a wall of flame? This dividing line? You have to be specific. You can't just say, we see it. See what? And he goes on to say, and if it's another demon to face intimately again, man, I'm going to get disappointed. Um... No, the testing phase. Um, no, it has to be the crossing of the threshold.
We don't know what be lies beyond the test, so to speak. What? Nothing lies beyond the test, but another test. So Azazel, you're not, you're not, um, uh, we're just not, you might need to pop on to explain what you're trying to explain because these little, um, these little tidbits that you're saying uh, are not communicating effectively. Uh, because if you got beaten up last time, then we don't understand why you're saying it's a wall and you can't see past the wall. The test is the test. It's not a wall. You're either taking the test or you're not taking the test. And you don't have to worry about what's beyond the test. You have to worry about the test. And it's not worry about the test. You have to do the test. So while you're climbing the mountain, the test is climbing the mountain. The test is not worrying about what's at the top. Who cares? To be in the moment means to... to to face that which you need to face in that moment. Who cares what's beyond the moment? That's, that's you and your mind projecting into the future. The future doesn't exist. There's only the eternal now. Uh, Stuart, just track, uh, backing up a little bit, Stuart says, to be tested is a privilege, a calling to rise as a hero, like Frodo being humbled um, in the calling was an honor based on his character. And he also says, that's the point in faith, in, di in divinity, uh, and to travel in faith. Yes, well, faith is intimate knowledge of. To be faithful to our innermost, our innermost hero to know our innermost intimate being at the exclusion of all others and to know our being intimately. That's, that's what it means to have faith. To have faith in the original meaning, right? To be faithful or to be able to give faith. In medieval times, if you uh, a witness who went to a court to testify would give faith that such and such was true. They would give their intimate knowledge of. Um, and the word faithful with regards to one's spouse originates from the Bible when the term to know referred to to be one with intimately. So Adam knew Eve and beget Cain. You know, Adam knew Eve and beget Abel, right? So to know means to be one with intimately. And to be one with your spouse intimately at the exclusion of all others means to be faithful. And to uh, fornicate with others means to be faithless. 
or to be unfaithful. Yeah, yeah, the insight, our insight on faith, it's, it's, faith is not belief. Faith is not belief. That's a bastardization, that's a degeneration of the word faith. And thus, when we are in the special world, when we are in the unknown, and we are facing our tests and our trials and ordeals, and we are facing in those moments, we have to face our our own shadow, our demon, or demons, whichever demon we have to face in that particular, because even a mountain climber will tell you that it's not the it's not the mountain that you conquer, it's yourself. And what you gain by descending into hell and facing your demons, armed with the weapons of your Divine Mother. Is the potential to liberate a little bit of your consciousness and discover, know something about yourself which you did not know and could not know and could not come to know without the journey without the separation. Without the leaving of the comfort zone. Right? To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take up arms against the sea of troubles and by avoiding end them. Here is the sea of troubles. That's what the special world is. That's what the unknown is. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. But that, that's its purpose. For us to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous, uh, outrageous fortune, fortune and suffering occurs through separation. Because what causes the separation is what causes the suffering. And what happens when we can face the causes of that separation, the causes of our suffering, and we can overcome and conquer the causes of those sufferings? Well, then we return. And whereas over here, we were crossing the threshold, let's make this bigger, over here, we crossed the threshold, we came down, we faced the ordeals, we conquered the, uh, the causes of our suffering, we faced the shadow and we conquered it, and we reintegrated the consciousness that had been enslaved by the demon, and then we come and we cross back home. And we return 
with special knowledge. And here, this is an interesting one here, a master of two worlds, right? We gain a little bit of mastery here in a master of the world. But we return with that special knowledge, that knowledge which can only be gained from the special world. And we end up at the next level. And this same spiral shape, the alm of life, you see it in role-playing games and you see it in, again, in narrative and you see it in life and you see it in, in, in everything. It is the very process of, it is the very process of uh, development of any skill or knowledge. So when you sit down at the piano, at first you have to play chopsticks. And then eventually you'll play Bach. But, but each time you sit down at the piano to learn a new piece, it's like you're descending into the unknown. You're descending into the special world. And the first time anybody sits down to learn Rachmaninoff, it's a whole new world of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of keyboarding, of piano. And, uh, and uh, to, to someone who's never played Rachmaninoff before, a, a Rachmaninoff, piece of Rachmaninoff music can make them feel like a beginner. It can make them feel like they're playing chopsticks all over again. Stuart Wilson says he never liked beliefs. <laughs> and uh, yes, we like, we also break this down like this. To, beliefs is uh, to, to belie. Mugaboo22 says, you said the higher you rise, the lower you go in the descent. It makes sense with the spiral. Yeah, obviously, of course. Of course. But think about it in terms of a video game. Think, think about it in terms of Dungeons and Dragons. Right? The, the deeper you go in the dungeon, the more powerful the monsters get. Right? The more powerful monsters you vanquish, the more experience points you get, the higher level you become as a, as a character. Well, the higher your level become as you as a character, you have to face ever higher leveled monsters in the dungeon it's, it's so every time you 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 the higher you go you have to go deeper the higher you go they have that's why someone like master jesus look at the challenge that he faced look at what he had to go through in terms of the crucifixion and look at the life that he lived in terms of challenge And we comprehend that Master Abramento, who's the innermost being of Jesus, descended from the Absolute itself. So he was issued a quest, a journey, which was appropriate to his level of being. And Magabu says, so every time I rise higher, 
I should expect a more painful experience, a stronger attack from demons, deeper suffering. You will, you will face greater challenges. Yes. The path doesn't get any easier. The path gets more difficult. But because it's being orchestrated by our Divine Mother and it is being played by our innermost being, the tests and challenges and ordeals will always be consent. Um, will always be appropriate to the level that we are at. We are never given any challenge that is beyond our capacity to handle. We are never given any test or trial or, de or ordeal which is beyond our ability to face. Because what would be the point of that? As Azazel says, the demons become becomes more tempting, subtle, and difficult. Yeah. That's another aspect of this. And uh, our experience of that in Japan was, was acute when we faced that test and we, were, we faced those temptations. The moment, the moment you experience any kind of awakening and any type of accumulation of knowledge any type of access to strength or power of any kind, metaphysically, almost immediately you will face temptation. And that temptation is not just mystic pride, right? The temptation is not just to believe that, oh, I must be a Buddha now, or I must be enlightened now, or I must be awakened now because I had this experience. The temptation will come in the form of being tempted to use that knowledge or to use that power for yourself, for selfish gain. With great power comes great responsibility, it is said. And that's why it is said. Because knowledge is power and power tends to corrupt. Because power Strength is light. And what gets attracted to light? If not mosquitoes, if not other insects and not other parasites, they get attracted to the, to, uh, to the light. And that to that, as Azil says, yeah, those, those demons become not just tempting and subtle and difficult, but dangerous. And Mugabu adds, I see it now. He says, I was sold love and light and infinite ascension by New Agers. Even as a noob, I intuitively knew that's not how life works. No, it's not. But they want you to believe that because the New Age is a creation of the Black Lodge. The Black Lodge, that's why in the New Age, love and light and power comes hand in hand with manifesting your desires and unlimited abundance and mass global awakening. And we're all we're writing about all of these in our book, explaining how these are all traps of the ego, and these are all designed to get people to awaken as demons. Because it's the dogma of the left hand path, uh, the dogma of ease, of comfort, and security. 
of using power for your own benefit. As Azza says, yeah, those temptations comes at a great price if we fall for them. The higher they rise, the higher the the further we fall. Remember that. The more progress you make, the greater the temptations will be. But if you succumb to those temptations, if you give in to those temptations, the further you will fall. And Stuart Wilson says, um, as an adult's responsibility is to be the guardians of our children. Well, that's uh, that's true. Um, and as Azel says, uh, like that video game example uh, you once mentioned. Right. That's the that's the story of um, when we were playing Soul Calibur or Soul Edge in Japan, and uh, we had that awakening experience. And um, and uh, we went on a Zen walk, and we ended up in front of a Ferrari dealership in Osaka, and we marched in. We and we there were three Ferraris in the showroom, and we just pointed at each, and we went. I can have that one, that one, and that one. We grabbed the brochure, we shoved it in our backpack, and out the door we went. And it was as it was as uh, as matter of fact as you know, saying blue is blue, green is green, and red is red. It was just as matter of fact, you know. And then later on, when we got back to our small apartment, and we 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 dumped out our backpack and we were going through all the things that we had collected on our Zen walk. And then there in our hands was that Ferrari dealership. And that's when we were struck by lightning. Because our failure, the evidence of our failure was in our hands. The moment that we had been granted access to this incredible wellspring of cosmic knowledge, this incredible power had, had, had flown through us uh, the previous night, uh, the previous several nights earlier. And then for the, 72 hours that we were walking as soon as that we had that experience the temptation was presented itself to us and that temptation came in three right the mind the heart the body right the three traitors the, th the three murderers of Hiram Abif the three sirens the three tempting sirens from um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, the three witches of Macbeth. And there were three Ferraris. And we said, we can have that one, that one, and that one. All three we can have. And then we were sitting there at home holding that Ferrari dealership in our hands and we were just like struck down by lightning with the, with the realization that we had failed the test, that we had been tempted, we had received access to ultimate power and ult ultimate knowledge, and knowledge is power. And at the first opportunity presented to use that power for selfish gain, we chose selfish gain. And it was then that, you know, we we comprehended that the line that separates Christ from Antichrist is a hairline. It's a slip on a banana peel. 
and that when we are we are undertaking the aum of life and making you know our so-called progress as this spiral gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger the higher we get the temptations will be just as great and the shadows we must face are just as great and in that realization that came to to us that day we realized that we had it within ourselves the possibility to be a great uh megalomaniacal villain of the world to conquer the world to be like alexander the great or napoleon or some such character and impose our will upon billions of people and reach the extent of our power and cry for there were no worlds left to conquer and this type of thing and that's what came to us in the realization the revelation that we had failed the very first temptation that was presented to us so stewart says uh, focus on responsibility rather than knowledge or power uh humility humility the recognition that i am not worthy of this power of wielding this power i relinquish this power i surrender to the source of strength within me let me let myself let this mortal vessel be the gauntlet on the right hand of god within then and only then will i be a worthy vessel and servant through surrender through service then we will bypass all temptation Tempt- we will be immune to temptation because we will recognize that it's not my power i don't have the power i don't have the knowledge i don't this mortal vessel speaking to you anything that i say that resonates with you resonates with you because it's flowing through me but it's not f- flowing from me i'm just surrendering to it that's why we say we because it's atlas who speaks and and even atlas is also serves his innermost being alux there's levels and levels and each each time we recognize our place in the scheme of things and this is how we can allow for the purest and most essential of truths to flow through us and what we feel very strongly about is the need to know information the essential need to know stuff and and explaining it we hope in a way which not which which resonates but which forms a framework and a foundation of practical application 
And in this particular case, the recognition that that we here, we are in the special world. It's called the world. <laughs> it's not the special world. It's this world. It's the world. And we are here. And we're here to accomplish something. And that something must include the tests, the trials and the ordeals, and it must includes the must include us facing our shadow, facing our demons, the causes of our suffering, and conquering, comprehending and conquering the sources, the causes of, of that suffering, so that we can return having we can return masters of two worlds and that we can return with the special knowledge that can only be gained through this process through this process of separation of becoming of, of separating from our being and becoming a character and working as and and part of this to succeed in this process we do meditation and we re rediscover the value of emptiness and we experience the fullness of emptiness and the inevitability which follows which is oneness and when we can reconnect and know ourselves intimately and be full of faith when we could be faithful to our innermost beloved in the way that a, a man and a woman are faithful to one another and they know each other intimately and two become as one and when two become as one and they can use the power of the Divine Feminine to create and not just create another intellectual animal but to create the solar bodies, to create divine beings. When we mortal vessels can achieve that oneness with our innermost beloved, then we have access to the Divine Creative Force of the Divine Feminine and Every act of creation is preceded by an act of destruction. The death, the psychological death, the death of a demon down here is directly responsible for the creation of the new knowledge and the rise to the next level up here. And this is the process. Now, uh, there's a couple quick comments here. Let's uh, try to get through them quickly. Because speaking of separation and return home, uh, our father has been in the hospital for three weeks, and we just heard that he just arrived home. So we are going to have to 
cut this uh, short in just a few minutes. So Stuart Wilson says, yes, yes to humility. Mugaboo says, yes, the prodigal son begs his father to be a servant. And Sir Will says, truth to temptation, tr truth to temptation, immunity, when we recognize God as source rather than self. Thank God, not me, nor you. Um, this is, okay, so God as source rather than self, meaning not the false self, but our true self is in our individuated essence of the Christ, of the Logos. And then the self of ourself, the being of beings is the Christ, which is the perfect multiple unity, which is in and of itself, we, we, say, we say the Son of God, right? So there's levels and levels and levels to this. But yes, Source, capital S, and self, capital S, are synonymous. They're the same thing. Just as long as we don't get confused with this false self as being God, like so many people in the New Age do. And that's where, that's the separation or the, what, what, um, what discerns mystic pride from radical humility. As Azel says, uh, we had a temptation, but that was related to destruction. We won't get into the specifics, though. And he says, and he, uh, and he follows up by saying, that shook us to the core. Our tests and trials and ordeals can take many forms. And it's interesting that, as Azel says here, temptation is not always pleasure. Sometimes it is pain. And there are some people who are addicted to pain. They're addicted to their suffering. We call them victims. Everyone who lives with a victim mentality, and there's an entire two generations that have been raised to use that winning formula, right? We call them the woke, where all they do is they walk around perpetual victims. Well, these people are addicted to suffering. They're addicted to their victim mentality. And that's how they seek to control the world. They gaslight everybody around them. And if they can convince everybody around them that everybody around them is responsible for their suffering, then it's their suffering that that's their source of power. Very clever and subtle uh, uh, trick of ego there. It's a, but it's very, very, very powerful because the woke is what undermines all of culture and history and, and uh, the family and even biology now, right? With all this transgender stuff. And sexuality now and the sanctity of children. And that's why they don't like the sound of freedom. Because being able to undermine the purity and naivete of children is part of the modus operandi of, of collapsing a civilization. Stuart Wilson says, the world, this world, you're doing great, brother. And he says, I hear you. May, may all be well with your father. Uh, yeah, well, you know, there's a good example of just a little, uh, you know, as above, so below, and as within, so without. You know, our father, you know, went into the hospital three weeks ago and uh, to face the unknown. And during the course of his time there, 
uh, the unknown became known and he underwent the procedure that he needed to do and now he's home again and hopefully for the better and ironically a year ago he was in hospital for a similar condition but at that time they misdiagnosed him they didn't perform the tests that should have been done so he ended up going home a year ago and ended up suffering needlessly for an entire year this time there were additional symptoms and so they sent him off to a different hospital in, in another city to perform um, uh, some more advanced tests and there the cardiologist discovered the real cause of the problem with these advanced tests and he was in and uh, he had the procedures performed that he needed to to have performed on him but all of this should have been done a year ago so sometimes we descend into the unknown and we return without having gained the knowledge that we needed to and that's why there are patterns in our life which often repeat and we have to go through the same tests the same journey over and over and over again until we successfully complete our mission our quest down here in the bottom but you know as well as i do whether it's in your life or the lives of others that you know of where they face they continually face the same tests the same trials over and over and over and they never learn their lesson uh, stuart says uh so glad to hear he is home and getting the right help now uh sad to hear of the delays well it uh it is what it is everything happens for a reason actually and um we're happy to say that uh, although he had a rough time of it this past year he also had the opportunity it also gave him the impetus to make some important um steps in his life and he also took a different journey uh he went back to hungary and visited his family probably for the last time and so it it it, it gave him a sense of urgency of just how old and how vulnerable he is and so if that if that if he needs to tie up loose ends he needs to he, he better he better get to it and so he took care of a lot of those things in this past year and that and the condition that he was in <clears throat> gave him i guess so he returned with some knowledge with some awareness of himself from the first time he was in hospital and now hopefully uh he'll have to suffer less now he you know so everything happens for a reason all right uh listen any other questions or comments from anyone before we uh okay as azul says the scripture of the bhagavad-gita became familiar to us to that uh, temptation where uh, vishnu takes on the multi-ironed form and proclaims now i am become death the destroyer of worlds uh that's interesting because the iron age is the age that we are in now and uh in the iron age the black lodge rules and its purpose is to bring about the destruction of humanities uh, humanity's destruction so yeah the death of a humanity the destroyer of worlds that's that's what we're 
in the midst of experiencing right now. And why we're writing this book is to explain this very clearly with the evidence that's all around us. That the the the, the uh, socio economic technological uh, cultural forces that are at play which are actively seeking to undermine the metaphysical foundations of our global civilization it's a, if you are if you want to bring down a building you have to weaken the foundations and that's what's taking place and it's all being orchestrated by the black lodge but that's their job but the vast majority of people don't understand this they don't see this and the difference between every other well i mean you know people have been talking about the end of the world since the first century christianity since or since uh uh, uh john of patmos uh, wrote the book of revelations i mean there's been a cult uh cult-like following for predicting the end of the world but that was then and this is now and whereas all that speculation well even when the fall of the roman empire was people thought that 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 was the signs of the apocalypse it was just the signs of the fall of rome but what's happening now it's global the signs are global and that's the difference that's the difference but uh speaking of which you know oppenheimer is going to be in, in theater soon and uh this quote now i become death the destroyer of worlds was famously spoken by oppenheimer upon the uh, detonation of the first nuclear bomb that's just a uh, coincidence we suppose serendipity any other questions or comments from anyone we will uh we hope that uh this Today's topic, we hope that taken in the context of the other topics that we have covered will give you uh, practical insight into where you are and to where you long to be and the process to get there. Going all the way back, one, two, three, four, live streams ago when we talked about meditation meditation leading to emptiness leading to fullness leading to oneness because remember to conquer the shadow to gain that strength right the weapons we use the real hero is our innermost being and we the character make the descent but we bring with us the, the one who is qualified 
to lead us and guide us. And let us be the gauntlet. Let us be the sword in, in the hand of our hero. Or let us be the gauntlet on the right hand of our innermost hero. And that's how we become an instrument of God. Right? Our innermost being is in effect the right hand of God. Jesus, the Son of God, sits on the right hand of God, the Logos, the Christ. And our innermost being is an independent, individuated essence of the Christ. So and it's a, an extension of. And we, this physical mortal self, are likewise an extension of that hand, like the gauntlet is an extension of the hand who wears it. Like the sword is an extension of the hand who wields it. This is how we, we, can, we can orient ourselves. And we actually have an article uh, which we wrote. It was uh, one of the first articles we wrote, as a matter of fact. It's one of our very first articles on this very topic. And we encourage you all, if you have not yet uh, read it, here is the link. And uh, this is one of our favorite graphics that we have ever uh, made for any article. It was one of our first. So there's the link. It's, uh, yeah, this article is from 2014. So that's what, nearly, uh, nearly 10 years ago. It's hard to believe that it was uh, nine years ago that we wrote this. Okay, uh, let's see now. More uh, comments. Benjamin says, is the Adam and Eve story, the fall of mankind, some sort of separation from the divine nature? Yes, it's when humanity fell asleep. It's when humanity fell from Eden. Because as you recall, Benjamin, Adam and Eve get expelled from the Garden of Eden. This humanity is expelled from Eden. Eden is the fourth dimension. How many people can see the fourth dimension? Even those who are clairvoyant can see auras and this and that and the other thing. But how many, how many can leave their body and put their body into jinn state? As we've often said, the reason why UFOs seem to be able to defy the laws of physics because humanities on other planets who have developed the technology can take the physical reality and dematerialize it. They can put themselves into jinn state and they can do that with or without any machines. So th their ability to enter into jinn state, they basically can just extend that to their vessels and they take the entire vessel and put it into jinn state. We've explained this before. This is how Jesus walked on water. Jesus put himself into jinn state. He dematerialized and he was able to walk on water because there's no, if you have no mass, there's no gravity. 
If you're pure energy, you have no mass. There's no material, there's no physicality there anymore. So the laws of physics don't apply to you and the law of gravity doesn't apply to you anymore. So of course you can walk on water. But this is a function of higher beings with higher levels of being. So when this humanity fell asleep, when we fornicated and we crystallized the Kunda buffer organ, we crystallized the ego, we were expelled from the Garden of Eden and we were trapped in the desert, in the, or sorry, in the wilderness. We were um, uh, expelled in, uh, to the wilderness of suffering and that's physical reality. These physical bodies are bodies of suffering. I mean, let's face it. The cold, the heat, the, the and all the rest of it, right? The hunger uh, and all and everything else that goes along with being a mortal physical vessel. Benjamin says, if so, there will be a redemption of or coming home for mankind based on the illustration of the hero's journey uh, for individuals. Not as a collective, not as a whole humanity. Because the whole point of the, the graphic of the hero's journey is you have to face the demon and you have to overcome the ordeal. You have to face the shadow self. You have to conquer the demon. Do you see this humanity conquering its demons? No, you don't. There's no evidence to suggest that. And so there is no, there is no collective hero's journey for this humanity. For individuals, yes, if we do the work. Benjamin says, enjoy today. Hope all is well with your dad. Inverential peace. Inverential peace, Benjamin. Inverential peace. Well, uh, okay. So these were our, uh, our links to our heard or not to heard article. That was here. Anything else? Anyone else want to add anything or ask something before we go? Going once, going twice. <laughs> thank you all for joining us. And uh, thank you for your, uh, uh, your welcome, Mugaboo. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for your patience and your understanding with us uh, um, Benjamin says, thank you, sir. This is another great live stream. We're, we're uh, glad you found it beneficial. And uh, we do thank you for your patience and understanding with regards to us cutting it a little bit short today. But again, in this particular case, I think we all know what that separation feels like. We all have had those feelings of isolation and desolation. I don't think we need to dwell on it too much and too long. The point is, is that we, we are sent into the desert for a reason, right? The hero goes on his journey of trials and tribulations and struggles and suffering for a reason. And that's what's expressed in the hero's journey. So find that in yourself. Find that in whatever situation that you are in, that you are struggling with, that you are suffering with, the isolation, the desolation, the separation that you feel in that separation, isolation, and desolation are the keys 
to new knowledge, to a capacity to overcome the causes of suffering and to find liberation and peace and find new strength within you because when you realize that you are not qualified, that you are just a vessel, you are a servant. And then you allow that strength to flow through you and you find that strength within yourself. And you allow that strength to move you. And so when you return, you return a master of two worlds because your innermost master was able through you to master the challenge that he had left to conquer that he had that that was made the quest for him to seek and the separation through you for you to find yourself like i found myself in japan and how many people have you known have gone on journeys to find themselves and it's a cliche isn't it but it's not a cliche clichés are clichés because they're true because there's merit to them, because there's substance there. So every act of separation in itself is part of the process of rediscovering ourselves, of finding that which will take us home, or finding that which connects us to home, and rediscovering the strength and the power, and that's only possible in this special world in this world of separation, in this world of suffering. It's Perseus descending into the labyrinth to face Medusa. It's Theseus descending into the labyrinth to face the Minotaur. Half man, half beast, right? And the Medusa with her head adorned with a thousand deadly poisonous serpents whose gaze can turn you to stone, right? These are the these are the, our own demons, our... The, the demons of our false self, the adversary of the false self. And all the serpents on her head are our many egos because Medusa is the inverse of Athena, right? She's mechanical nature. She's mechanical mother nature versus Athena, who's divine, our divine mother. All of these play into this. All of these come into this. So don't forget no matter where you are, no matter how desolate it may seem, no matter how isolated you may be, no matter how alone you might feel, hold on to the spark, the seed. Remember your Divine Mother. Remember your innermost being. Read this article. We cannot encourage you enough. And comprehend the allegories and symbols we use in this article to contextualize your place in the scheme of things and when you comprehend that then then any and all obstacles you face just like we said earlier any temptations that you might face if you surrender to your innermost to the one who's qualified to face these challenges and ordeals then you can overcome anything, you can conquer anything. 
And what you're conquering first and foremost, above all, is yourself. Yeah, is Azul, is Azul, yeah, Medusa, Medusa, Lilith, etc. Yeah, the inverted mechanical nature. That's what we're conquering, our mechanical nature. All right. So if there are no more comments or questions, we want to thank you. Azazel uh, thanks us and thank you, Azazel, for being here today. Uh, we want to thank all of you uh, for joining us today. And uh, we hope to see you again next week. Uh, have a great week. And as always, to one and all, inverential peace. God bless.